When you love farming, you want to talk about it all the time. Real people, real farms, grassroots. This is the Ontario AgCast. Welcome to the Ontario AgCast. The Ontario AgCast is proud to be part of the Farm and Rural Ag Network. For all the best agricultural podcasts and agriculture video blogs, be sure to check out farmruralag.com. I'm your host, Wendell Shum, and my guest today is Harold Rudy. Harold is the former senior manager with the Ontario Soil and Crop Improvement Association and is the author of a new book called The Soil Fixers. Harold, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Wendell. It's a real pleasure to be on your show, and I look forward to our conversation. We could have actually done this in person had we wanted. We're, we're really only a stone's throw away from each other because I am at home in the town of New Hamburg, and you live just outside New Hamburg. Yes, and I would have been happy to invite you over here for <laughs> for a coffee or uh, or any other beverage to <laughs> celebrate the launch of this new book. <laughs> right, and I do want to talk about the new book. I, I want to get a little bit of background first because we are, so we're sort of from the same area, but the farm you're on just outside New Hamburg, that's been in your family for a number of years. Yes, my parents uh, bought this farm in 1929, moved out from the KW area and uh, raised 10 children. My partner, Sandra, and I, we have the privilege of, uh, of being the owners, and uh, I don't farm anymore. I've been uh, focused very much on my career uh, for the last 30 years, over 30 years, actually, uh, with the Ontario Soil and Crop Improvement Association, very engaged in uh, management activities with a uh, whole list of programs and projects that our association has administered. I, I took a quick count, and uh, in the soil fixers, in one of the appendices, we actually list over 100 programs and projects that we have record of, and that takes up seven pages in the appendices. And in full disclosure, people know this about me, maybe I am not a crops guy, and so I'm going to maybe learn something about soil and, and soil improvement for people that don't know, and I guess I take it for granted that people know where New Hamburg is, but there's be some listeners that aren't from the area that won't know. New Hamburg is about an hour and a half west of Toronto, sort of between Toronto, Kitchener, then London, then Windsor. Yeah, I explained to Wendell that uh, New Hamburg is halfway between Kitchener and Stratford, and most people know where Stratford is because of the theater. Um, and they know where Kitchener is because of Oktoberfest celebrations in October. So um, if you can get your bearings with those two descriptors, um, yeah, we're halfway in between. It's a neat area because there's a nice blend of city, urban, and then, you know, within a few minutes, you're out into agriculture and even Mennonite country. So you kind of get the best of both, but it does make for unique farming experiences for some people as well. Yeah, we have a great diversity of agriculture, uh, a good mix of livestock, poultry, vegetables, um, a bit of fruit, maybe not as much as we'd see in some other parts of Ontario, but certainly the, the typical field crops that are, are widely grown across Ontario as well. We talked briefly about the Ontario soil and crop being more of a, a soils and crop organization, but I have to say that in looking at our board makeup over the last 30 years, there's always been at least half of them are engaged in livestock or poultry. And of that livestock group, a uh, very strong uh, dairy contingent on our board. So 
We hear lots and lots of comments, discussions about integrating both the livestock industry with crop production. And um, yeah, there's there's certainly um, huge advantages and some challenges that go along with that as well. And that's an interesting point. You can be a crop farmer without having livestock, but you can't be a livestock farmer without growing crops, really. You have to have an arrangement with a neighbor, uh, if you do, for managing, uh, obviously, the manure um, and the nutrients that that come from the livestock or poultry. Growing up on the farm, was it a livestock farm? Do you have any experience with livestock? We had very much a mixed farm, and so I grew up milking cows, and uh, my dad had another pasture farm down the road, so we'd be... uh, be herding cattle up and down the road once in the spring and once in the fall, and usually steers. And we had uh, hogs and uh, chickens as well, lane hens. So we've had uh, the full diversity, and in later years, we grew potatoes and some strawberries. So I've had a taste of the horticultural industry, both here on this farm and and working for uh, a large food processing uh, company out of Brantford for a few years as well. All right. You've seen... The effects of sort of urban encroachment on agriculture land, even where you are. So New Hamburg would be a town of somewhere approaching 10,000 people, which is, yes. you know, a small, small town. And even that, there's a lot of growth and a lot of that growth comes at the expense of prime agricultural land. Absolutely. And uh, and we, we certainly have seen uh, the transition from the typical mixed farm to much more specialization, and that trend is not just in Ontario, but uh, across North America and obviously in in the Western, a lot of Western agriculture as well. Certainly, the um, urban encroachment is is a huge uh, concern um, all over because uh, the urban, uh, or sort of the cities were first located on some of the best agricultural land in um, North America, for sure. And I think we only have about 7.3% of our land in Canada suitable for food production, with Mm -hmm. uh, half of that about for growing cultivated crops, and then the other half, uh, a little bit more than half, for pasture land. So we have a very limited land base in this country to produce food. In those stats, of course, a whole lot of land in in Ontario and in Canada is rocks and trees. (laughs) Correct. (laughs) And lakes, for sure. And lakes. There's There's a lot of lakes. Okay, so you went to Guelph. Did you focus on, on soil and crops right from the start? Well, no, my major was in agricultural economics and business. My rationale there, I, I enjoyed crops, but I felt that agricultural economics and business would give me a much broader perspective. Later, I went on with a master's in rural um, planning and uh, development, which gave me, again, a very broad perspective on rural issues. One of which is the use of of agricultural land and the sustainability of land use. Yes, yes. And um, um, I have a whole chapter on sustainability in the soil fixtures. Basically, the last chapter before conclusions. I don't use the the word sustainability much at all in the book itself because sustainability has been very difficult to define and it's often been misinterpreted. And uh, going back in time throughout my career, certainly, uh, it was introduced by the Brundtland Commission as part of a United Nations report and uh, and certainly acknowledged the importance of the three pillars of environment, economics, mm-hmm. 
and the social side. And Harold, when would that have been? When, when do you recall first hearing that definition of sustainability? Actually, in 1987. And that's about the year, the year I started my, my career with Ontario Soil <laughs> and Crop Improvement Association. But unfortunately, the economics and the social side of that definition haven't been well addressed um, in no. talking about sustainability. We've been very focused on the environmental component, and I think mm-hmm. we've, we've had a lot of major achievements, a, a number of wins in that area. I mean, it's been more recent uh, within the last 10 years that, that our association has diversified its program and activity to acknowledge and focus on these other important areas as well. If you want to have programs and you want farmers to do things that are good for the environment, there has to be an economic benefit upside to that. Absolutely. Yep, or they won't uh, survive. So you started your, your career with Ontario Soil and Crop in the 80s, sort of mid-late 80s. What would a typical day look like? Help me understand, were you dealing with members? Were you facilitating programs? What, what, what was that? Yeah, the well, I guess just to give you a little background, I actually was working as a soil conservation advisor with the Ontario Ministry of Agriculture, Food and Rural Affairs. An important new program was announced called the Land Stewardship Program. Of course, in those days, it was only OMAF. It wasn't OMAFRA yet. That is correct. Um, <laughs> the acronym was shorter. <laughs> right. And, of course, the Ontario Soil and Crop Improvement Association was uh, a much smaller organization, and uh, the ministry approached them to take on this new uh, component of the of the $40 million land stewardship program. It turned out our, our contract was closer to $20 million, but the uh, partnership evolved, and they needed a program manager to head up the new land stewardship program. So I uh, applied. And uh, lo and behold, I um, I was accepted, and I assumed it would be a three-year contract, and then I'd be out on the street looking for something else. <laughs> but uh, as they say, the rest is history, and uh, we didn't look back. There was just so many new opportunities kept coming our way. And uh, I have to also acknowledge the tremendous partnerships that went on uh, to, in, in two areas. One is with our local county and districts across Ontario. There's about 50 of them. And in those early days... We formed a committee of farmers to administer the land stewardship program, gave them authority to make decisions, gave them an allocation of funding to uh, divvy out um, among farmers for cost share improvement, land stewardship activities. And of course, the other partnership, a very strong partnership at that time, was with Ontario Ministry of Agriculture and Food. And um, and then it wasn't long until we uh, formed a partnership with the federal government, Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada, to help them administer uh, a permanent cover program called the National Soil Conservation Program. So Ontario was was a recipient of, of uh, a portion of that funding, of which was allocated across Canada. So that was sort of the first five, six years of my employment with the OSCIA. What were the major challenges that the Environmental Stewardship Program were trying to address? Like, what were you seeing in terms of the health of the soil and from an industry perspective in those days? Yes, well, there there was strong scientific evidence of soil erosion, uh, topsoil eroding into streams and waterways. Right. Uh, and along with topsoil, um, phosphorus was the big nutrient that went along mm-hmm. and attaches to soil particles. And, of course, 
a huge scientific study of Great Lakes water quality. That was a big issue right from the 1970s on through and, and a number of, of very uh, large reports that came from scientists. And then farmers themselves noticed, uh, you know, that their topsoil was was eroding and it was an evolution of cropping practices where fence rows were being removed and fields made bigger. And at that time, there was a fair bit of continuous corn because it was economical to grow it. So farmers themselves were actually some of the leaders here in Ontario, putting on the brakes and looking for new and innovative ways to better manage the soil. No-till was in its infancy, beginning in, in the, you know, the early 1980s by a few innovative farmers, and they became almost demonstration farms for others to look at. And of course, we didn't have the uh, sophisticated equipment for no-till that we have today. So they get out into the fields and uh, into their workshops, and they kick the tires and kick the coulters and, mm-hmm. and look for uh, ways that they might be able to adopt uh, that technology on their own farms. And this was a time, the 80s, we had come through a decade where it was farming was tough. You know, we saw a lot of people go out of the industry. How hard was it to talk people into conservation practices when a lot of them were just focused on staying in business? Surviving. Absolutely. The 1980s were a rough time. Low commodity prices and, and high interest rates uh, up over 20%. Well, that was the, the benefit of the land stewardship program. It provided financial assistance right. to producers to make the transition to purchase some of the conservation equipment. We diversified the, the funding as well to plant cover crops and uh, put in erosion control structures that would, would also uh, slow the water down and uh, channel it into outlets um, in a more sustainable manner. So that was a very important part of uh, the initial conservation movement. You know, we have the ministry to thank for bringing that program forward and for the local committees that administered it and sold it and marketed it throughout the farm community. You know, the challenge was there wasn't enough money. $20 million went pretty quick when right. it came to <laughs> to helping farmers in this transition to more of a conservation-type farming. Yeah, and now we've had, you've had a, a successful career, and and we've had 30 years basically to judge the impacts of some of these practices resounding success well um and that that to me i guess is is why i i have to talk about what compelled me to write the book obviously we have these various programs and the history uh, to document and i think i've done a pretty reasonable job of that the second uh, compelling reason was to look at history uh, and ancient history as well and see the um, destruction of civilizations that didn't manage their soil. And uh, in, in some examples, they could move on because there was available land, uh, you know, in the, the next valley or it, uh, today we don't have that luxury. And, and right. of course, the third yeah. compelling reason is that today we have so many opportunities with new technology and the knowledge that we have on how to manage soil and crops and be much more responsible and ensuring that that we don't create any uh, environmental damage uh, due to soil erosion or water quality and so forth. So how successful have we been? Well, I think I think uh, to summarize up my last point, we have a tremendous amount of knowledge 
Mm-hmm. I think we still have some major issues that need to be addressed. We still have a, a big compaction problem. Uh, when you have compaction, you don't have internal drainage for water to soak down through. It uh, tends to run over top. Um, I think we've come a long ways in recognizing the importance of crop rotation, uh, both from an economic perspective, uh, we get better yields, and we get uh, better uh, stability on our soils. And then we have all these tools, and I didn't mention either the the more sophisticated electronic wizardry that, mm-hmm. that of course, we have today with precision agriculture. Yeah. Um, looking at, looking at, at a combination of certainly drones, satellites, Acquiring um, much more sophisticated data through soil uh, testing, using the 4R program of using the right nutrients from the the right source, the right rate, the right time, and the right place. And we're mm-hmm. becoming much more sophisticated in, stu- in nutrient stewardship as well. Yep. Technology is not only good for profitability, it's good for the land and it's good for the environment. Absolutely. So we... We've come a long ways in knowing what we can do and how to do it. And we'll keep developing new technology to address problems as as they come up. Yeah, I I talk about the advancements in technology um, fair but but in in the soil fixers, it isn't just a history book. I I talk about, uh, you know, how... um, our farmers are, in order to survive, to keep prices down and work with economies of scale and tackle these risks, are, are going to be reaching out, looking uh, to incorporate new technology as it comes along. Gene editing, I speak very highly mm-hmm. of gene editing for disease control, uh, insect control. Um, obviously, there's other benefits that can go along with that in terms of improved flavor and quality. And uh, and we're just at the beginning stage of that, uh, given uh, the huge potential there is for tackling some of these problems that um, we we need to tackle because uh, the world population in particular is um, approaching will will approach 10 billion people over the next generation, and uh, so we'll have to become more sophisticated even into the future. That's right. And that's when sustainability is, is not a, a buzzword. It is actually something that, that is absolutely necessary. Talk to me about the actual process of writing a book. You've been quoted as saying that you had never planned on being an author. That's absolutely right. I I never had ambitions to be an author, but as, uh, as I approached the twilight of my career, I began to recognize that, well, first of all, there had been two history books written um, of the OSCIA, one from its beginning in 1939 up until the early 1970s, and a second book that covered uh, that period from the 1970s into into the mid-1980s. So there was this huge gap of uh, program activity uh, that OSCIA was engaged in from uh, my career uh, beginnings in 1987 right through uh, until my retirement this year. And uh, I felt that somebody had to capture all these interesting programs and projects and stories that I felt uh, I was in um, a prime position to do that because I was in the middle of the action and... uh, (laughs) Had had a lot of uh, memory of uh, what went on, and and I try to document everything. I've got about, uh, I believe, close to 250 references that 
that I cite as well, so that uh, students in the future can can look at what happened in these thirty years and have a good uh, a good reference for it as well. So, in terms of writing a book, uh, no, I knew nothing about um, how to be an author, but you Google the um, <laughs> go on the internet and uh, ask the question, and you get all kinds of responses. There's many publishers have free free booklets, free manuals on how to become an author. Uh, in order to get that free manual, of course, you have to give up your name and your phone number and your email <laughs> address. <laughs> sure. And then, of course, they start to hound you with signing up to become a, a published author. But uh, I learned a great deal from that process. I consulted with many, many people. Um, some of them were accomplished authors, and I I did ask them a lot of questions. They were very generous with their time. Some academics from University of Guelph, from Wilford Laurier as well. So I took a lot of the things that that they took to heart, many of the things that they advised me on, and you know, took a, a bit of an unconventional path in terms of writing the book. Uh, my style of writing may not appeal to everyone. It's a little more quirky, but. <laughs> um, some advise that that's actually a good thing, and I'm hoping hoping that, especially for the non-agricultural reader, that they will find that maybe more interesting reading than, than certainly it's not an academic book by any means, and it's not a soil science book. Harold, talk to me a bit about the editing process, because you're taking your thoughts and you're putting them on paper, and so... Obviously, it's something you care a lot about and are passionate about, and you put those on paper, and then you give it to somebody and get this brutal kind of feedback. How does that feel? Well, <laughs> yes, and I did. we, we did hire uh, an editor, a professional editor, um, <laughs> Barry Gunn, who was, uh, was editor at the National Post for uh, a good part of his career. He became my, my primary editor. I did have another editor take a look at particularly the spelling and grammar at one point as well. I guess I wasn't um, treated, I was certainly wasn't treated unfairly, and, and I felt that that was a very constructive process as well. They uh, managed my style of writing, and the important thing, as I was told by experts and by the editor, was to keep my voice. And I didn't understand what voice meant, but basically uh, it's having a consistent way of communicating and making sure that that doesn't change from chapter to chapter. And I'm told that I was able to do that. So that was one positive thing that made it easier for the editors to to deal with as well. People that I've talked to that, that have read the book, I've heard great feedback. It seems to be a big hit. You're donating all of the proceeds that you get from the book to OSCIA. Well, you have to remember that I was working full time with a a full-time salary while I was writing it. And uh, so I made it very clear, although I, I'd hoped the book would have been out maybe a few months earlier, um, I made a commitment to the board that because they they paid me to write it, that I would see this book got out the door and I would do whatever, whatever I needed to do in my retirement to uh, make sure that people heard about it and that I could could tell the story of the book as well. And I'm doing that right now and I'm happy to do that. I was very, very blessed by uh, the support of the board and uh, the fact that they picked up the costs for editing, uh, the cost for publishing, and so forth. And so that's only fair that the proceeds go back to the association. And, and they've agreed that 
if there's any surplus at any point in time, that funding will go to uh, either student scholarships or on-farm research, which is totally consistent with the mission of the organization and um, and uh, sort of be a positive thing all the way around. Great. And I've seen sort of on social media, I've seen this thing pop up. How are you promoting the book? Are you traveling around doing speaking engagements and, and different events? Yeah, there are a few speaking engagements lined up. Um, I'm happy to do that. I've uh, been into a few bookstores, and I'm hoping that we can spot uh, a supply there on consignment, especially leading up to Christmas. I think it's a golden opportunity to get exposure um, you know, through the Christmas season. Um, there's been fantastic media coverage of the book launch. Uh, we had the book launch last Tuesday, actually, formally in Guelph. And over 100, uh, 100 people came to that all the way across from the Ottawa Valley to the Windsor area to as far away as Sudbury. So we've had tremendous exposure on that. Um, at our office in Guelph, we've offered the local associations the opportunity to buy the book at, at just a little over our cost, and they can divvy them out among their members. We've had as much as, well, Essex County, I'll give them the credit, they agreed to buy 50 of them, and they're going to give the book to each one of their members. So there's that kind of activity going on behind the scenes as well. And so, again, um, promotion and marketing of a book is something new to me. Um, <laughs> if the opportunity comes along, I'll, I'll be happy to be part of a bookstore promotion, uh, to signing, um, signing books on a Saturday morning or uh, afternoon, whatever it takes as well, in the short term to, to get exposure. And I'm very interested in, in getting this book into the hands of not just the farm community, but the non-farm community as well. And and uh, when I wrote it, I, I kept in mind that there's some, some good information here for those that, that are inquisitive about food, agriculture, the environment, may not quite understand uh, uh, the things that we do. And uh, hopefully this book can provide a bit of clarity on the rationale of what we do and why we do it in agriculture. Uh, it, agriculture is complicated. And uh, no, it's important sure. yeah. important the non-farm community understand that complicated process of putting food on their table as well. So I'm hoping the book will have some appeal to, to the non-agricultural folks. But I said at the book launch that the book will be a tremendous resource for students. And I don't mean just formal students in school. By but and you know anybody interested in food, agriculture, and the environment, anybody interested in food is a student. So there's there's certainly information there for everyone. And there's lots of reasons to continue learning, whether you're in school or whether it's part of your field. And so, what's the easiest way for people to get the book if they if they want to buy? It? The easiest way is to go through our publisher, Friesen Press bookstore online just search under that name and then you'll get to their homepage. Um, and then you can simply do a search on either the soil fixers the title or my name and uh, up will pop the book and uh, the process and of being able to purchase it online now the big question harold is can i get it on my kindle reader or on ibooks um it is available on e uh, as an e-reader absolutely um, I can't. I can't say which e-readers it tells you. Actually, I think online. I know it's confusing. It's almost like trying to find a podcast. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely is available uh, <laughs> as an e-reader. 
or as a soft cover. And if you want to pay a few bucks more, it is uh, you can get a hard cover as well. Especially if you want to give somebody a Christmas gift, maybe that would be the route to go. Yeah, you can see where this might show up under the tree or in some people's stockings this year. There you go. Okay, so Rudy is not the kind of name I would associate with someone with an Irish or a Celtic roots, but you play in a in a Celtic <laughs> band called Shepherd's Knot. Is it traditional Irish music? Yes, it is. And you're right, I didn't have any background in that type of music, but I, I did grow up in a musical family. And with, with 10 children, I did have a brother who was a high school music teacher, very talented, and he'd bring home um, all the instruments, quite frankly. Uh, he'd fill his trunk on a weekend or through the summer, and so I had the opportunity to try them all. And I was active in music in high school. But to make a long story short, I always had the desire to play with a small group. And and one thing led to another. And through friends and associates in Guelph, I was introduced to a group of people who played this type of music. And they were looking for a, a bass, a stand-up bass. And I just happened to have one in the closet at home. And uh, so I got involved. And uh, I've been at it for uh, over 15 years now. And and we not don't have all the same people involved, but the music hasn't changed uh, very much, and we've we've got uh, probably over a hundred tunes that that we can draw on, depending on the occasion. Would you classify your band as a sort of raucous party band, or is it more mellow? We can adjust to any environment. <laughs> we do we do cocktail hours to uh, the dinner <laughs> dinners. We've done Kaylee's. <laughs> And we've done Christmas concerts as well. And uh, we even played with the Bach Elgar Choir in Hamilton one a couple of years, actually, uh, as part of their Christmas concert uh, as well. So we, we have a pretty flexible group that can adjust. Depends entirely the occasion. These uh, typically are not the ruckus Irish tunes <laughs> that you might hear uh, here uh, in Ireland in uh, some of the pubs. Although I think a few <laughs> of those songs probably we could find. <laughs> Great. Good stuff. Well, you certainly haven't lost your your passion. It sounds like you enjoy a good time. And, and I think this book is something I'm going to have to track down and, and have a good read. Thanks for taking some time and, and chatting. I've really enjoyed catching up and I am looking forward to checking out the Soil Fixers. And I guess it would be almost criminal if we didn't find an excuse to actually meet in person and, and have a chat. Absolutely. Please do drop in. I'll be happy to uh, sit down and chat some more. Excellent. Hope we get a chance to talk soon. You bet. Me too. This has been the Ontario AgCast. The Ontario AgCast is produced by Christine Schoonerwood and is proud to be part of the Farm and Rural Ag Network. For all the best agricultural podcasts and agriculture video blogs, be sure to check out farmruralag.com. If this is the last podcast we ever do, it's been fun. If not, we'll see you next time.